Interestingly enough, as we study the book of Jonah and we read about his calling to Nineveh, that area is where some of these refugees are coming from. So there's some interesting connections that I believe God is even making with our church in these weeks. If you will, will you turn to the great book of Jonah? It's in the Old Testament, either using the Bible in the seat rack in front of you or the Bible you brought with you here to church or your device that you have, no fantasy football, Uh, look up the book of Jonah. If you're scrolling through your Bible, it is after the kind of more famous book of Daniel, then you have the minor prophets of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then you hit Jonah after Obadiah. If you go to Micah and Nahum, you've gone too far. But I said this in week number one, maybe just look at the table of contents and save yourself some embarrassment in time, as this book is only four chapters. And today in our seventh installment of wrestling and and looking at this book and seeing what God has for us, I want to remind you again as we look at Jonah chapter 4 that the main character of this book is not a whale who's mentioned in two verses. It's not even Jonah who the, na- the book is named after. The main character in the book of Jonah is God. He is the hero, the central character Uh, of this book. And so our prayer today is that you can see God, his character, his heart, his attributes through this final sermon. And so Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read all 11 verses of this chapter. And this is what it says. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. It's kind of a theme of Jonah's life Uh, in this story. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Remember, uh, Eric mentioned last week that he's referring here to Exodus chapter 34. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. At dawn, it came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have reason to be angry about the plant? And he, Jonah, said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant, for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, 
the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. And then the book stops right there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The two things in our world that will endure forever are God's word and people. And so this word talks about people here today. It's pretty important. We need to lean in. My hope is that this is a little bit of a pebble in your shoe. That as we leave today, that you are in a holy way bothered by the things that we talk about here today. As we examine this idea of what do we love more, plants or people? Now, this isn't an anti-environmental talk. (laughs) We believe that creation made by God is good and we are called to cultivate it and to take care of it. So don't stop watering your lawn or, or the plants in your backyard. But what do we ultimately live for? What do we ultimately love, people or plants? Look at verse 4 of Jonah 4. The Lord asks Jonah this question, what are you, what are you angry about? And we see Jonah's response in verse 5. Oh, actually, there, there isn't a response. Jonah, reminder, he was the guy that was swallowed by a whale And yet God delivered him out of God's grace from death and the belly of the whale. This man who had had the most miraculous, probably famous deliverance in the history of humanity. Hears this question from God and like a spoiled child storms away. Doesn't even answer uh, God's question. Instead, he leaves the city of Nineveh and heads east outside of the city. And there we read that Jonah builds a shelter, not a great shelter, probably like some of the things that we see in Lesbos. Jonah builds the shelter and he looks down on the city of Nineveh. And at this point, you read or you heard in those first early verses of chapter four that he's expecting God to be gracious to the evil people of Nineveh. But he sits out there under the shade, east of the city, with his arms, I'm picturing, folded. And there's still about 1% of him that hopes that maybe God heard his little speech and will change his mind and end up destroying the evil, wicked, bad people of Nineveh. So there he sits, east of the city, looking down, hoping beyond hope that the people of that city will be wiped away. I was thinking, what's a modern day equivalent of where Jonah was sitting? It's probably like here. I don't know if you recognize this point of view, but this is at Orange Hill Restaurant. If you've ever been up Chapman, heading up the hills there towards the junior college up on the top, uh, Irvine Park, you come up to Orange Hill Restaurant and you have this beautiful view Uh, In fact, when it's clear, if you've been up there, you can see downtown L.A. and the city lights from there. You can see even faint lights from Catalina at Orange Hill Restaurant. I used to actually work up here. I was a valet parker for two years until I crashed two cars on the same night. And that is a story for a different time. But picture yourself up here at Orange Hill looking down 
at the city of Orange and beyond that to Los Angeles and down south to Newport and Irvine and way out to Catalina, picture yourself with the attitude and heart of Jonah. Looking down at your neighbors and the city and wishing that God would send a meteor to destroy everyone there. Now you're starting to get a little bit of the heart of Jonah if you were to sit up here and and feel that way. It's contrasted by how Jesus felt when he was east of the city. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, we see this beautiful portrait of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem, standing to the east of it, looking down on it, and weeping. In the same way that maybe you picked up on Aaron and our team who had been to Lesvos, their hearts have been broken by the things that they've experienced and seen. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, his heart broken for the city of Jerusalem because he knew that they would ultimately reject him as the Messiah, the King, the Savior. Jonah was the opposite. Jonah had no compassion. His heart was not breaking for the people of Nineveh. Look at verse 6. We see that God appoints a plant. Um, We don't know exactly what type of plant it was. Some speculate that it was a castor oil plant. I have no idea what that means, but that's what theologians say. Um, I just found a nice house plant. Actually, I stole it from Aaron Holmes' office, so sorry, Aaron. But um, picture a plant growing over Jonah, and he loves this plant. The word says that God appointed the plant to provide shade over Jonah. In fact, in this chapter, we see that word appointed a couple different times. In the original language, it means assigned or provided. And so we see that God provides a plant here in verse 6. In the next verse, he assigns a worm. Then we see that he appoints a scorching hot Easter wind. And then back in chapter 1, he appointed the fish. Which on a side note, we just once again, the main character of this book being Jonah, we see that God is not phased by any of Jonah's responses or reactions. That God is involved in every detail of Jonah's life. Even to the detail of appointing a specific plant to grow over him at a specific time. And it says here that Jonah, in verse 6, is extremely happy about the plant. You guys are my family. I can just be myself with you. But just picture like, ah, look, I'm so happy. Woo! <laughs> I regret that decision. <laughs> picture a football player scoring a touchdown and the moment of exhilaration that they feel as they've just scored this incredible uh, points for their team. Picture a girl who's been waiting for so long to be engaged and finally experiencing that moment where her boyfriend gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me? Imagine for a moment that you won the lottery today. That feeling of like, yes, overwhelming joy, just like in shock of how good life is all of a sudden. 
This is the words that are used to describe Jonah's feelings about a plant. Praising out loud, joyful, merry. I mean, it's over the top how Jonah's feeling about this plant. And then look at verse 7. But God appointed a sign, a worm. And this worm came at dawn and attacked the plant and it withered. Yeah, I've read this passage over and over. It's just interesting how little things stick out to you. But I was just thinking as I read this at one point, what kind of worm could eat an entire plant in just a few hours? I mean, this is a plant big enough to cover Jonah in shade. And also, what did that worm look like? After he had eaten that entire, destroyed that entire plant. I'm picturing, I know this is not a worm, but I'm picturing Heimlich from Bug's Life. And it says here that as the worm eats the plant, the sun comes up. Verse 8, scorching east wind. It's fall now. If you didn't know, it's officially fall here in Orange County. You can't tell by the leaves, but let me just tell you, the calendar tells us it's fall. And so shortly, we're going to be experiencing Santa Ana winds, right? It's the worst, isn't it? And every once in a while, those Santa Ana winds bring this hot air through our cities. And I'm just imagining it right now. Like, it's not good days. So here is Jonah... His plant is eaten by a worm. The thing that he's extremely happy about dies. And then God assigns this wind. And the wind rushes through and it's scorching, the scriptures say. And Jonah becomes faint and begs with all his life to die. He wanted to die over the plant going away. His shade evaporating, his comfort being taken away. He wanted to die because of those things. We often despair the most about what we love the most. We often fear, or we, the things that we most fear to lose, it's a good indicator of what we really truly love. I mean, picture that time when your phone broke. And those immediate thoughts that came to your mind of like, no. Maybe you're in a public setting and you're trying to keep relatively calm about it. But inside, you're just going crazy, just thinking, my beloved phone. We often despair the most about what we love the most. Yeah, we also have to cut Jonah some slack here. I mean, picture his life. He's just minding his own business, prophesying to the king of Israel. It's going well for him. The, the king gives him a lot of favor. And his life is cozy and comfortable and predictable. And then God shows up in chapter one of our story here and totally disrupts and, and turns Jonah's life upside down. And it ends with him jumping onto a boat and, and fleeing. It then involves him going to the most evil, despicable place in the world, which was Nineveh, and risking his life to proclaim a message that he was certain that they would respond to. I mean, Jonah had had everything changed 
in his life. And so for those of us that have had those type of life-altering, upside-down changing moments in your world, you get that Jonah was an emotional person, that it wasn't necessarily stable, that he was kind of searching and confused and wondering, God, where and how and what are you doing in my life? And so I, in some ways, cut Jonah some slack here as many of us have been in this boat. Yet in all of Jonah's trials and in all of the nation of Israel's trials and, and the hardships that you and I go through, I believe that God's most concerned about exposing our heart. What do we truly love? What are our hearts truly attached to and devoted to? Jonah and really the nation of Israel loved plants over people. They loved what God was giving them, the chosen people of Israel, over where God was sending them. And that's all of our temptations, right? Is to fall in love with the gifts that God gives us over falling in love with the gift giver. I struggle with that every day, and I know that you do too. Do we love the gifts that God gives us, or do we love the source of those gifts, which is God? C.S. Lewis is always uh, helpful when it comes to matters of the heart. And in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. In other words, you are not meant to live in a Marriott hotel. You are meant to live in a permanent dwelling. In our spiritual lives and for eternity, we're not meant to live in the comforts of this world. We're meant ultimately for a truer, greater, and better country, a truer, greater, and better home. And that is in eternity with Christ. Pete Scazzaro, a modern-day pastor and author, a guy who's kind of mentored me from afar from New York, he says it like this, we can't get to the place we're called to without being stripped of what we think we cannot live without. Our plans, dreams, security, health, home, reputation. So like Jonah, like the nation of Israel, God is in the business as he relates to us to strip us of things that we turn to besides him. The comforts of our lives, the shade, the plants, so to speak, of our lives. God is interested not in causing us pain, but in causing us to let go of things that we hold higher than him. He is a jealous and holy God. Lewis, again, in the book of The Way to Glory, says this. If we consider the unblemishing, unblemish, unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I recently had a conversation with someone who's not a follower of Jesus, and we were having an excellent spiritual conversation, and ultimately what they said was, I can't become a Christian because I cannot give up my lifestyle. And to think through that, even in light of this quote, to not give up our life here for life eternally, it makes no sense. And yet as we live day to day, we can get, all get caught up in that 
lie, can't we? And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to suspend a moment here this morning. And I want us to repent of things in our lives right now, this week, this morning, that we tend to love more than God. What is the plant in your life that competes for your affection and attention? And at times you turn to rather than turning to the one true loving God. And so here's what I want us to do. If you're physically able, would you just stand up and would you turn around in your chair? I know it's a little awkward. It's kind of tight in these aisles. But can I invite you just to get on your knees for a moment? Will you just stand up if you're able, if you're physically able? If you can't, I understand. But if you're able, can we just turn around in our chairs, humble ourselves in physical posture? And I'd like to read the words of King David over us from Psalm 51. This is what it says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you'll make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all your iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Take 20 seconds and just in the quietness of your own heart, will you just repent, confess areas of your life that God's not first? Father, thank you that you are a gracious God. You were gracious to Jonah. You are gracious and compassionate to Nineveh. Lord, you're gracious and compassionate to each of us in this room. God, be our first love. Be our first love. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you can turn back around in your seat. So you see in this passage that Jonah loved comfort 
Now we see what God loves as we turn to verse 9. It says in Jonah chapter 4 verse 9 that then Jonah and God have this divine conversation. Incredible. We get to see a conversation between God and a person. God says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? Again, repeating what he said in verse 4. This time, Jonah actually responds. He doesn't run away. He actually has the boldness to respond to God. And he says, I do have good reason. I think Jonah and the disciple Peter are probably buddies in heaven right now for their boldness. And then in verse 10, God responds. He says, you had compassion on the plant. I have compassion on people. He goes on to this great, great description of how he feels about Nineveh. He says there's 120,000 people there. They don't know their right from their left. This is probably an allusion to the kids of Nineveh. Because as a kid, think about it. When you've had kids or you were a kid, it's like, okay, go left. You're like, okay, which one's my left? So it was this saying that they would say back in ancient times, when you didn't know your left or your right, you weren't old enough to understand those things. So here God's saying, I have compassion on the kids of Nineveh. I have compassion on the people, the city of Nineveh. This word compassion in the original language means grieving, weeping, heartbroken. God weeps and grieves and is brokenhearted for the lost people of Nineveh. God grieves, weeps, and is brokenhearted for the people of Orange County who don't know Jesus. The people who are taking rafts as we speak and landing on an island and country they've never been to before. God grieves and weeps for them. Now, God didn't have compassion on Nineveh because they were so good. It was actually the opposite. They were so evil. And we understand even that principle of God as we see him love the Ninevites is that God doesn't love them because of their goodness but because of his goodness. Romans chapter five. I think I've shared this verse almost every message I've ever given to us at Calvary. I just love this passage where it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners Christ died for us. Will you say that with me? Let's say it all out loud together. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So good. So we should love the things that God loves. God loves sinners. God weeps and is brokenhearted for the lost. We should love the things that God loves. On this next slide, please don't boo me, okay? Um, we promise that um, you won't boo me right now, okay? <laughs> I grew up in Northern California. My dad at the age of seven took me to an Oakland A's game. I'm sorry, Garrett, for this. Um, took me to an Oakland A's game, and I was captivated. I had never been to a major league stadium before and I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I didn't know that it was actually the worst stadium in all the professional sports at that now but I just fell in love with the Oakland A's at the age of seven and now my brother and my dad were scattered throughout uh, the country and so it's kind of a way that keeps us connected throughout the year. Did the Oakland A's win? They did. They always win. Um, <laughs> this last Wednesday 
I took my boys to the A's game. We live literally, you guys, two exits from Anaheim Stadium. And yet I've trained them, even with the greatest player in the world and Mike Trout, within stone's throw of our house, I've indoctrinated them to love the Oakland A's. <laughs> if someone could pay for their counseling one day, I'd appreciate it. But um, they love what their dad loves. We should love what our dad loves. God loves the nations and the peoples of our world. And we should too. You've heard this a couple times, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, that the world might be saved through him. We should love the things that God loves. This is my friend Apollos. He's one of our national missionaries here at Calvary. He actually was on the stage maybe about two years ago. Um, Apollos is compelled to love the people of Niger. He's born and raised in Niger, grew up in a Muslim family, accepted Christ through a dream, incredibly, as a teenager. Has led most of his family to Christ. He has four kids. There's a couple of um, nieces and nephews in this photo. He's had another baby um, since this photo. And Apollos told me, we ate at Mimi's Cafe with Brian Hendricks and John Small. We ate at Mimi's about six months ago. And Apollos goes, my life is in danger right now, but it's worth it to me to tell people about Jesus. If you don't know, Niger is 99.99% Muslim. Um, He's ministering in places where there's um, lots of embedded terrorists. Brian Hendricks texted me this week that um, Apollos is, is missing right now. And he hasn't contacted his family in the last week. And he was serving at the border of Nigeria and Niger, which is probably the most dangerous place really in the world right now. Um, I point this out. One, I'm going to be praying for our missionaries. And we need to be praying even for Apollos. And for those that are called to love Jesus more than a plant, to love Jesus more than comfort, to love the things that God loves. In fact, will you just pray with me right now, just lifting up Apollos. Father, um, I just pray that he's safe right now. Uh, God, if there's any danger on his life, would you protect him? God, would you help him see that you are so present with him? That, Lord, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire, you were present with them. God, may you show your presence to Apollos right now. Be with his wife. Be with his kids as they wait. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. I said, I want to be a pebble in your shoe. <laughs> Praying that the Spirit even is moving within each of our hearts today. What do we truly love? Do we love the things that God loves? We also read that God loves generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us this. Uh, next week, we're going to begin a new series called The Journey of Generosity. Really getting into the heart of God's heart to, to give and, and bless others. We also know that God loves righteousness. 
Psalm 11 reminds us, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. He loves it. And I think of the three things I just mentioned, God's love for the world, God's love for generosity, God's love for righteousness. Out of those three, Jonah loved righteousness the most. And that's what was just kind of messing with his theology. Because God, how can you be both merciful and just? It just doesn't make sense to me that you would call me to these wicked, evil people. But we have the benefit of knowing more of the story than Jonah did, don't we? We have the benefit of looking at Scripture in its totality, the great big story, and we see that the ultimate Jonah is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster... So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, both God's justice and God's mercy were met in the death of Jesus. The wrath of God that we deserve for sin was poured out on Jesus at the cross. The mercy and grace that we so desire was paid for and purchased at the cross by Jesus. So we see in Jesus both justice and mercy. This is our God. This is the God of the book of Jonah. This is the God of Calvary Church. This is the God who goes with you outside of these walls and doors on mission for God to love people more than you love plants. There's a great poem, it's 181 lines, I believe, uh, by a guy named Francis Thompson. It's called The Hound of Heaven. And he's British, and so he talks about hunting in uh, England and how they would do these hunting hounds that would would chase after the prey. And he goes, that's kind of like God. God chases after us. Jonah was running from God, and yet God in his grace chased after Jonah. Nineveh was shaking their fists at God, and yet God in his grace chased after Nineveh. You and I have rebelled against the holy God, and yet the hound of heaven has run us down. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are relentless pursuing God. God, thank you for reminding us yet here again that although you do give us good gifts, we're in Orange County. We serve and love and are devoted not to the gifts you've given us, but to you as our gift giver. God, may we love you with all that we are. May we love people as you love people. Thank you for this reminder, this encouragement, this prompting today. May it go with us. In Jesus' name we prayed. Amen. Amen.